you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Last week we took a break from Acts to celebrate Redeemer's 20th anniversary, but now we jump back in. And I've given you a little deal. I want to, I'm going to start trying to help, help you, give you some notes to follow along with. I'm going to try and use the screen a little bit better to help you follow along as well. And hopefully it'll be a blessing to all of us as we seek to hear from God and apply His Word to our lives. There's a great tradition here at Redeemer. We heard about it last week when Brian Halila spoke for a few minutes. Brian was the lead pastor here before I was. And among the many things that he shared about the characteristics of Redeemer, he used the word grit. And uh, I liked that word. In fact, as I've been studying this over the last two weeks or so, it was a word that I had in my mind about this particular passage even before Brian used the word. And so when he said it right here, and I was standing right there, I thought, this is providential. God wants me to use the word grit. Giving you a little definition there, it's courage and resolve. It's an indomitable spirit. And we honored the valiant ones around here. We brought up the Drenths and the Budawigs and the Kurs and Miss Wilma Brooks, those who have been here since February 1998 for 20 years. More than any other, if you will, around here, those folks have shown some gospel grit, some courage, some resolve. But it wasn't just them. There's many of you. Maybe you weren't here since February of 1998, but you came Somewhere along the way, and month after month, year after year, one of the things that has marked you, and by God's grace, I think us, has been gospel grit. And we're going to need it. Not over the last 20 years, we're going to need it over the next whatever God would give to us. Each of us as individual followers of Jesus and as a church body. When I was at Dallas Seminary, way back when, 95 to 2000, my favorite prof there was Howard Hendricks. That's nothing new. Everybody went to Dallas Seminary. Their favorite prof was Howard Hendricks. I took a leadership course with him. And one of the sessions was 10 characteristics of leaders. The first one was that leaders have a strong sense of purpose. But then number two, right behind it, is that leaders are those who persevere and have staying power. That's not true of just leaders. That's true of every man or woman who wants to follow Jesus faithfully for a lifetime. Demands perseverance. Demands staying power. And in those days, he drew something up on the board. It was... See if you can follow me. I should have put it up here, but I don't have it. He said, along the way towards your goal, and in our context, I think it's to follow Jesus and help others do the same for a lifetime. All the way to the end. Faithful to the end. Finish strong. But along the way, you and I will meet criticism. And if we can push through the criticism, we will then meet opposition. And then if we can push through the opposition, we will then meet problems and then if we can push through the problems, we may attain our goal. 
The thread is that along the way when criticism comes, as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus and live a life trying to help others do the same, that criticism will come our way and the threat is that we'll get out. Or if we can push through the criticism, then the opposition will come and the threat is that you and I would say, it's too much, it's enough, I'm out. Or if we can push through the opposition, the problems will come and eventually we'll just give way. But if you and I are going to reach our goal, if we're going to be faithful to the very end, we're going to need some gospel grit, courage, resolve, indomitable spirit. I want us to look at the early church, because as I said, as I've been looking at this over the last couple, even three weeks, this is what has come to my mind time and time again as I try to wrap my, my, my mind around this passage and what God would have for us. We start in chapter 5, verse 12 is where we are, but we're actually going to go back a little bit. Further than that, you see it in your outline. Chapter 3, verse 11 and 26, you remember that, that Peter and John healed a lame man. And as a result of, of that miracle, the crowds came, and what Peter had opportunity to do was to preach Christ. So Caleb, throw my slides up there. We got it. There we go. In chapter 3, verse 11 through 26, Peter proclaimed Jesus. That he was the one that God sent and yet who was crucified and God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and that he's alive and he can forgive your sins and bring renewal through the Holy Spirit and give you hope of the restoration of all things and that, that you don't want to put him off but rather you want to receive him, believe in him. And as a result of proclaiming Christ there in chapter 4, here's what happened. They were arrested. They were interrogated. They were threatened. And then they were released. You see it in chapter 4, verse 2. The leaders were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them. Then they put them in the center. They interrogated them. And eventually they said, you know what, we're going to have to let them go. But in verse 21, when they had threatened them, they let them go. Arrested, interrogated, threatened. If you preach in this name anymore, watch out. And then released. As we continue in the story, what do they do? They prayed and they proclaimed Christ. If you'll remember, they got together with their friends and they said, here's what they told us, that we need to stop preaching this in this name or else. And they said, let's pray. And so they prayed, God, give us courage to keep on preaching. And God heard them in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. If y'all keep preaching in this name, watch out. God, give us courage. And they kept preaching in that name. Pick it up again in chapter 5, verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. 
And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing the people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. And so Peter and the apostles just kept right at it. And as a result, they were arrested again in chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. So first time it was Peter and John. Now apparently it's the twelve. Arrest them. Put them in public jail. But miraculously, they are delivered. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. This is God stepping in. When the leadership of Israel is arresting and putting them in jail, This is God saying, oh no. And they are delivered. And they are told to go into the temple area and proclaim the whole message of this life. And we'll see it in verse 21. Upon hearing this, they entered the temple about the daybreak and began to teach. They obeyed and proclaimed Christ. Verse 21, now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the synod of the sons of Israel, sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officials who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captains went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. And so arrest might be a little bit strong here, but they went and they found them. Hey, Would would y'all please come with us? Maybe in light of the miraculous deliverance from prison, they, they weren't as bold. But anyway, they brought them in, interrogated them again. In verse 27, the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. 
So they've brought them in again. They're interrogating them. We told you not to preach in this name anymore, but you filled this city with your teaching. What's up? We must obey God rather than men. Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, exalted him to his right hand. There's forgiveness of sins in his name. Verse 33, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. Just a little note on the book of Acts. As throughout this section, early on, it was just disturbed by the preaching. They brought them in and they threatened them. They bring them in in this time and and they're thinking about killing them. It's intensifying. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. This Gamaliel, just as a note, this is the one whom Saul, who will later in the story become the Apostle Paul, when Saul left his hometown of Tarsus and came to Jerusalem to become a Pharisee, to learn the law, he studied under this man, Gamaliel. And when the leaders are threatening to kill these apostles, Gamaliel steps in, maybe He's beginning to see something impressive about these followers of Jesus. Verse 35, he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was slain and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be even found fighting against God. So Gamaliel, a cooler head, prevails. Verse 40, though, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That's taking a a, a whip. Sometimes scholars think it was a cat of nine tails, nine pieces of leather coming off the end of this thing, in which would, would be bone and stones And they would rip down your shirt or robe or whatever it was that you were wearing and they would wear you out. The law said you could do it 40 times. They would do it 39 just so they wouldn't break the law. Similar, if not exactly what they did to Jesus. flogged them, ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. Well, surely this will shut them up, right? Of course not. They rejoiced and proclaimed Christ. Verse 41, so they went on on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing 
that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's some grit, some courage, some resolve, an indomitable spirit. Where did it come from? And if you and I are going to need similar, maybe we're not going to be arrested. Maybe we're not going to be flogged. We're going to be criticized. We're going to be opposed. There's going to be problems. If we don't want to check out, if we don't want to give up, if we don't want to just quit, if we're going to need this kind of gospel grit, where might it come from? That's been my pondering over this the last several days. Are there any clues in the text itself of some things that maybe we could try to follow in their steps that would give us this kind of grit? There's four things that I've seen. You may see some different ones. The first one is this. Appreciate this life. And I put this life in quotes because I'm taking it exactly from chapter 5, verse 20. When they were delivered from the prison and the angel said, go and stand, speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Now the New American Standard has life capitalized. I believe the ESV does as well. I didn't check the other translations. But that was my first inclination, is that this life is referring to the life of Jesus. The whole message of this life is the message of the gospel, of the good news that the eternal Son of God left heaven's glory and became a man and lived a holy life and died upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and then raised from the dead and then God exalted him to his right hand. And if indeed that's what it means, amen. The whole message of this life of Jesus, proclaim that. Indeed, that's what they had been proclaiming. This Jesus sent from God, you crucified, but God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand one day to come again. But as I studied and checked the, what commentators are saying on this, Seemingly, many of them believe that the whole message of this life, it's certainly connected to the life of Jesus, but in this context, they think it means the whole message of this life, this unique life, that followers of Jesus enjoy. It's eternal life. It's this salvation that we have come to enjoy. Go into the temple and proclaim the whole message of this life that is found, this unique life that is found in Jesus Christ. I could certainly go with the other. I'm inclined towards this one, and in fact, they're inseparable, are they not? Because this life that you and I enjoy is 
is because of this life that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose and the like. But friends, have you not experienced the life that Jesus Christ gives? I've quoted it, I don't know how many times here at Redeemer, but in John chapter 6, when Jesus was preaching some hard stuff and some people started to head on back home, they didn't want to follow anymore, and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you're not going to leave too, are you? And they said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. This life is a life of forgiveness and the peace and the security that comes from that. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the, the greatest problem that that you have is that you are a sinner and the wages of sin is death. What you need, what every one of us need is forgiveness. Not climbing some rungs to do better so that God will be impressed. Not jumping through God's hoops so that maybe, just maybe, you'll make it. What you need is someone to forgive you. And the gospel is a, is a life of forgiveness. Jesus Christ came to live a life you couldn't live and die upon a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. So that by trusting in him, your sins can be forgiven. A life of forgiveness and the peace and the security that comes from that. It's a life of newness. When the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and He begins to give you new desires, He changes you. Little by little, sometimes a lot by a lot. But, and it's up and it's down. But, but the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and all of a sudden you begin to think, I want to go to church. Good night for all of my life. Going to church was a beatdown, but... Now that I know Jesus, I want to go. I want to be a part of the people of God. I want to sing to God. I want to hear His Word. I want to rub shoulders with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Maybe you never had a desire before to read the Word of God, but now, having come to Christ, you say, this is for me. He begins to give you new desires. You realize that you have been forgiven so much, and it just absolutely changes how you relate to people in your life whether it's your spouse or even your kids or people that you work with. Because all along the way in life, people do us wrong and we do people wrong. And, and, and where you used to just, boom, respond in anger, you find yourself changed. Going, good night. God could have responded to me in anger, but he, he responded to me in patience, kindness, and forgiveness. I'm going to now extend that to others. That's evidence of the life that God brings through the Holy Spirit. It's an, it's an incredible thing. This life that comes through Jesus. It's a hope-filled life. We talked about that a little bit last week. But the promises that we have of what is to come just fill us with hope. 
that the sufferings of this present world, and there are many, and all of us could put a long list, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be ours. It's a hope that stabilizes us for today. This life. You've heard me before use the language of deliverance. That when it came to salvation, some of you were living a life just completely rebellious against God. And you could give us a long list and a good description. And you came to realize the truthfulness of the gospel, and you put your faith in Jesus, and your life was radically changed into this life of forgiveness and security and newness and love and patience and purity and, and the hope of what is to come. Others of us, maybe we, we were so young, we can't remember that kind of rebellion. And so we might speak of, of a testimony of preservation, knowing the inclinations of our heart even now as Christians. We think, who would I be if it weren't for Jesus? Oh, that wouldn't be pretty. I know my heart. I know my pride. I know my greed. But this life in Christ. So let's appreciate it. I think they did. Earlier, they, when they were first arrested, Peter and John, and they were, hey, y'all need to quit preaching in this name. They said, we, we, we can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard. Our lives have been changed. We think about John 9, the man who was blind, and yet Christ healed him. Hey, listen, I, you got questions I don't know the answer to. All I know is I once was blind, but now I see. Life, a new kind of life, this life, a unique life. They had experienced it, and they knew it was for everyone who would believe. So I think that may be one thing that that kept them going when they were arrested and threatened and eventually flogged, what kept them going in the face of criticism and opposition and problems was that Jesus Christ had changed their lives. And they knew that he could change others' lives. And that's second. Love people. I think they did. They were always out and among the people. Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. And some think because they knew that it would be filled with people. That's when they were able to heal the lame man and have an audience to proclaim Jesus. Here in chapter 5, verse 12, they were again in Solomon's portico near the temple where the people would be. After they were arrested and delivered and Eventually flogged, they went every day in the temple and from house to house. Why? Because the people. They knew that this message of this life was for the world. And that meant it was for their neighbors. It was for their friends. It was for the 
community there in Jerusalem. They knew that they had been blessed in order to be a blessing. They knew that they had been made conduits of the grace and the love of God. They had received it, but it wasn't meant to just end there. They were to be conduits of that same love and grace and mercy to the world, which meant right there, men, women, and children that lived among them. They had learned well from their master, Jesus. who would look at the people in Jerusalem or in Galilee or in Cana or wherever he might be, and he would look upon them with compassion because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. He would look at those who were burdened. He would look at those who were trapped in life-destroying habits and sins. And he would hurt for them. and He would long for them. He would have compassion for them. Jesus, their master, was a people person. And those of us who may not consider ourselves people persons, we're still called to love. Think about Peter. Peter was a hard, tough, son-of-a-gun fisherman. I'm not real sure, but sometimes the things we read about in the Gospels, you go, probably not so good with people, you know? But here he is. His life radically changed by the forgiveness that he had found in Jesus. And time and time and time again, he's thinking, where are the people? How can I build relationships? How can I befriend those who are far from God that I might tell them of His grace? Here's another thing. They resolved to obey God. They resolved to obey God. So if you and I are going to keep at it with gospel grit, we need to appreciate this life that we have come to enjoy. We need to love people. Ask God to open our eyes as His eyes are open to the needs around us. And then they, they were resolved to obey God. We saw it first in chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're either going to obey you or obey God. We're going to go with God. We see it in our text in this morning in chapter 5, verse 19. After they were thrown in prison during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the whole people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. They just obeyed God, his messenger, this angel. Go and do this. Okay, we'll go and do that. And then again, it really comes to light after they had gone and brought the apostles back in. In verse 27, the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders 
not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God. And that seemingly was their motto. In the face of the criticism, in the face of the opposition, in the face of the problems that would have seen many others maybe quit and go home. They said, we must obey God rather than men. That's our motto. We've been sent. We must obey God rather than men. Uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll throw you in prison. We must obey God rather than men. We will flog you. We must obey God rather than men. We will kill you. We must obey God rather than men. It was their motto. And as we seek to obey God, or as we seek to not only joyfully follow Jesus, but help others to do the same, what will your motto be? We talk about around here about living a blessed lifestyle where we, we take note of the, the, the people in our lives who are far from God, who maybe live near us or who we work with or we are friends with around town, and then we, we resolve to bless them, we, to begin with prayer, to listen as we ask them good questions, to eat with them, to practice hospitality, to serve them as their needs become known to us, and then to share our story of how God has changed our life through the gospel of Jesus. We're to live, we sometimes use the phrase gospel intentionality. Same idea. Realizing that I've been sent by Jesus and I want to live with gospel intentionality, with a sense of presence in my neighborhood or in my workplace or in my school. A spirit of prayer that I want to pray for these who are around me who don't know Jesus and in the spirit of a proclamation, when, when God opens doors, I want to tell them what he's done in my life and what he can do in theirs. We sum it up in our phrase, help others do the same. Others might call it a great commission lifestyle. So when we try to do that in obedience to Jesus, when the criticism, the opposition, the problems come, what will be your motto, Mitch? May it be, I must obey God rather than men. Finally, number four, welcome opposition as a badge of honor. The, the wording on this one was, I'm not real sure, John Piper, embrace the pain of shame. In verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They had been shamed, humiliated for their faithfulness to Jesus stripped down and flogged 
This wouldn't have been in some little corner where nobody knew about it. All of their friends would have known. All of their neighbors would have known. The whole city eventually would have known that these apostles had been humiliated for their faithfulness to Jesus. They had been publicly dishonored. They had been made a spectacle and treated with absolute contempt. You and I may be shamed. Maybe you're in, you're in class and you take a stand for Jesus and a teacher just humiliates you in front of the rest of the class. Or maybe you're at work and five or six of you go out for lunch and the conversation turns as sometimes they do and you, you speak up something about Jesus, something about the gospel. And one of the folks at the table just belittles you in front of everyone. Or maybe it's over the holidays, sometimes the dreaded holidays, surrounded by family. And something comes up and you say a word. And a relative, maybe it's an uncle or maybe it's a cousin or maybe it's a parent, just absolutely dismisses you and your ideas in front of everyone. Or maybe you're on the team. Or in the band. Or in the theater. Or whatever sort of club or group that it is. And you're seeking to be a light for Jesus. And you say a word. And you get hammered for it. Shamed humiliated, belittled, dishonored, made a spectacle, if you will, in front of others. Jesus had told them, and he tells us, not to be surprised by this, in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And so for the apostles, we can assume that it didn't take them by surprise. They knew that it was coming because Jesus had told them that it was. And then he said, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Rejoice. The apostles didn't look to sue the leadership in Israel. They didn't seethe thinking about how they will get their revenge. They didn't curse back at their enemies. They sang. They rejoiced. They joyfully followed Jesus. Peter would later write to a group of Christians who were being marginalized and suffering for their faith in Jesus. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. 
But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Often say to myself, and I've said to you all, I'm not so sure what that phrase means, but it sure sounds good. The Spirit of glory rests on you. So they seemingly welcomed the pain, the shame. They embraced it. Imagine. Imagine if one day it could be said of Katie. Chapter 5, verse 28. You have filled Katie with your teaching. Imagine that one day, maybe sooner than later, it could be said that every man, woman, and child in Katie had the repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That a faithful gospel presence and prayerful spirit and proclamation was into every nook and cranny of our city. If so, I think it's going to mean that we're a gritty kind of folk, courageous and resolute, who don't call it quits, but keep pressing on. Let me close with this. Friday mornings, teach a men's Bible study. We've just started the book of Revelation. And men, you're welcome to come and join us anytime, even if you're on one of those crazy Friday schedules. You can come every other week. No problem. But we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 to 8 this, this past Friday. And we, we, we talked about how the book of Revelation was given by God through Jesus, through the angel, to, the, to John for the sake of the bondservants of Jesus, for us. And in particular, it was given to those seven churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus and Smyrna, Laodicea and Thyatira and the like, and that those churches were, were made up of Christians just like you and me, beleaguered, sinful, persecuted, oppressed, going through hard times, sick, discouraged. And on the whole, the book of Revelation is calling us to persevere, to stay at it, to don't quit. And in these first few words, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Don't you need grace and peace? From him who is and who was and who is to come, that's the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's an interesting phrase, most believe it, it's reference to the Holy Spirit, and seven is the word of completion. And, listen, from Jesus Christ, and he, and he says three things about him, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus was the faithful witness. He followed God's way all the way to the end. He was faithful all the way to the end. 
Even when it was going to cost him his life, he was the faithful witness. He was the firstborn from the dead. He died, but he rose again. And that's, I think that's meant to encourage us to be faithful witnesses all the way to the end. And though we die, he was the firstborn from the dead. We will follow in his footsteps. And then he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this day, Domitian was the Roman emperor, and he was an immoral thug and a violent persecutor of the church. Talk about criticism and opposition and problems. And yet John wanted them to know, God wants you and me to know, that we have grace and peace from Jesus Christ who who was the faithful witness, who was the firstborn from the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Over every opposition that you and I face, Jesus reigns supreme. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to finish well. We want to joyfully follow Jesus right now, today, in the ups and downs, the good, the bad, the hardships, the scary moments, the, as we struggle with sin and as we just fight for faithfulness. We want to do that well today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year all the way to the end. As the author of Hebrews would say, to those suffering Christians, you are in need of endurance. And we are too, Lord. We are in need of endurance. Of grit. Would you help us? Would you supply us with courage? With an indomitable spirit that stays at it until death or you'll come to take us home on that day lord if there's any here today who do not know jesus as savior they haven't experienced this life this unique life of forgiveness of newness and of hope oh god maybe right now you would open the eyes of their heart to see their own sin but but to see the grace and the greatness and the love and the mercy of God through his son Jesus, that he is a great savior. And even in the quietness of their heart right now, they would turn to him and take him as their savior. Maybe today would be the day for them. We'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.